All right. <laughs> Dodgeball. This is my opening illustration for today, and uh, it's kind of a fun game that we like to play sometimes. I've uh, played it with the youth and been romped, but also, so kind of what happens is you play and then you learn your place really quick. And so high school is a little too much, but I can still play with my kids and dominate. <laughs> so I have a good time because when they're like this tall, I'm like, Rah! you know, and uh, such is the case when we go to the Sky Zone trampoline park in Saginaw. We did that for the first time the other day on one of our staycations. It was great, you know. Me against the five-year-olds. <laughs> Come on, baby. This is going to be awesome. Actually, that's a bit of masala or exaggeration for the sake of uh, making the point. But what happened is um, a kid had a birthday and he wanted to go there. And it, was, it is a bunch of little kids. And so the dodgeball area was closed and my kids are just like, oh, we got to play dodgeball. We got to play dodgeball. Come on, come on. Can we play? And well, it's closed, you know. So eventually I'm like, all right, hold on. Go over and talk to the manager and say, sir, um, you know, I, I know it's closed, but it's not real busy here today. We're having a really good time. I promise I'll be super gentle. <laughs> Will you please, please, please let me play with the, uh, do- on the dodgeball court, and the guy hymns and hums, and then says, can you do throw left-handed? Are you going to be, you know, he's wondering if I'm really going to, you know, take out these little kids and get them in trouble. Uh, he's, I'll, I'll, I'll be okay. I'm here for a birthday, I promise. I'll hold back. Now, won't let my competitiveness get the best of me. I'm doing it for them, not for me. He's like, okay. So we go and play, and it's really funny. How do you even out the teams with a bunch of kids you've never, you know, played with before, and you kind of see, and so I'm running this game, and and my little guys are, one, one of them at least, is really, really competitive. And he is funny, boy, because let me tell you, cool guy, I love him to death, but he wants to win every single time. He wants to win. So he's looking at the teams, and he's like, Dad, you got to be on my team. Dad, you got to be on my team. Dad, you got to be on my team. And I'll put like six or seven little kids on the other team, and it'll just be me and him. And he's standing there, and he's jumping up and down. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he is excited. He's like, we're going to kill you guys. We're going to kill you, you know. I'm like, Zion, I'm not here to kill him. I can't kill him. <laughs> Hold on. You know, this is not this game. And then we play. Oops, I said a name, didn't I? We, I did ask for permission. Doesn't exactly know what's coming, but so we play, and sometimes there's a little bit of uh, discomfort because I may not be going all out, and he's like, "Come on, you should be going all out because I do everything all out, and you got to go all out, and you got to win, you got to win." But what's really cool, and I'm just, this is the point of this illustration, is as a dad when you're with these little guys, I know you eventually grow out of this and doesn't work anymore, but at this stage. I can still dominate. Like, against five-year-olds, I am amazing. I can, like, I can grab them and throw them through the air. It is so fun. I feel like King Kong or Godzilla or just, like, force and power and, you know, this is great. And my son's expecting this. And so, basically, he gets on a team with me, and he's like, we're going to win. We are definitely going to win. There is no question about it. Before we've even started the game, he is literally like jumping up and down. Just can't wait to get on on the trampoline and win the dodgeball game. Well, here's the thing. As we go into 1 Samuel 17, 
This is the idea that I want to communicate to you is this genuine and real concept, not some fake thing, but something that's actual and real. When you have a childlike faith in God, you can go to into any competition and it doesn't matter how outnumbered you are. You can, before you even enter the contest, be jumping up and down with incredible enthusiasm, knowing that you're going to win got this. We are going to kill them. I don't care how bad. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> Everyone else is looking around and saying, wait, wait, wait. There's eight of them and two of you. And you're like, yeah, but I got my dad on my team. And he's awesome. <laughs> he can blow them away. And when I asked permission for this at our kitchen table a few nights ago, I felt good because the kids really got it. I said, so do you understand what I'm saying? They're saying, yeah, 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 yeah. Because even when, and this is how they described it, you're like this, and the giant is like this. God is like this. I'm like, that's it. You know? But the problem is, most of the time, we're in difficult circumstances. We're looking at us going, I'm like this. I'm five. And this guy's a giant. I'm going to lose. I mean, it's a no contest. If it's me against this obstacle, this whatever, I lose. No doubt. Fear is rational at that point. It makes sense. In fact, courage is stupidity. However, if I'm like this, the giant is like this, but God is like this, oh yeah, we're going to win. Every single time. No question. So what I'm hoping to do by the end of the sermon today, it's, I know it's really hard to get there, but I'm going to try to move you at least a little bit in that direction, that we can begin at least to think what it would be like to look at every obstacle, every hurdle, every difficulty, every insane giant in our life and say, we got this. Not we ourselves. Let me make that careful distinction. But our team, the one we're with, God himself. See, this is very different than the Oprah or Chicken Soup for the Soul or the Planet Fitness or the whoever else. I am not saying you can do it. Let me be very clear about that. One thing I am not saying is you can do it. That's the last thing I'm saying. I'm saying we can't. What I'm saying is God can. And because you are on his team, you can jump up and down with incredible enthusiasm and excitement. And you can run face first into situations that you have no chance whatsoever. Because of who's got your back. That's a totally different approach. This is not the you can do it. This is not the little blue engine. This is not yay you. This is yay God. Today, 1 Samuel 17. What I'm trying to say is this. I think through this text, what happens is a lot of people read this text and they go, okay, this is the you can do it sermon. You know, this is the conquer the giants in your life. This is let's overcome obstacles speech. But the reality is, if we focus in on that, we really, really, really miss the main point. And the main point is this, it's not about our victory, but God's. It's not that we win, or that we can, but that God does every single time. Epic duels then, all those cosmic struggles that we see playing out in the universe in reality, are simply... God versus something else couched in human terms. 
I'll show you that today as we go through some of this, and you're going to think at some point, wow, this is a deep dive. This guy must really like that ancient Near Eastern culture thing because he's going historical bananas. <laughs> and the reality is what I want to do is set it in this context so that as you read the story of David and Goliath, you never read it the same way again, ever. It's not Jonah and the whale. It's Yahweh. It's not David and Goliath. It's Yahweh versus Dagon. It's a totally different story and completely different way of doing it. So what I want to do is say that basically like the dodgeball thing that kind of looks like King Kong versus Godzilla, or if you're a little bit more historical, like the Greeks pictured playing out for the supremacy on the planet, this is the battle of the gods. This is good versus evil. This is Yahweh versus Dagon. Here's a picture of it in ancient mythology. This is around... Um, 525 BC and basically it shows the bunch of gods fighting the giants and there's an actual study you can do in Greek myth and yada yada you don't need to know that I just want you to know that this is a very real thing that the readers of this text way back then would visualize in their mind when they're coming to a scene like this they're not thinking shepherd versus giant they're thinking the battle of the gods this is the battle of the gods. So what happens then is this. Here's, I'm going to give away my ending. Here's the theme. Yahweh's victory produces David's victory. Just like Jesus' victory produces our victory. In the battle for supremacy, in the battle of the gods, Yahweh's victory produces David's victory then, and Jesus' victory produces our victory now. So to set it in context, the way I'll walk this sermon through for the next 30 minutes is I will say here's what it looks like the battle of the gods then this is the David and Goliath thing if you will or actually we'll call it something different by the time we're done and then the battle of the gods now this is how it applies to your life how does this affect me every single day here it is so let's talk about the battle of gods then uh, you actually um, know a little bit about this from our Jonah series already if you remember, here's a slide from that series. One of the things that the kings, the ancient kings were portrayed as is sort of the warrior hero. You know, the almighty, all-powerful, conquering deity that comes in and does away with the bad guys and makes it a better day. So here's one from Assyria. This is later than David, but it's the right idea that shows him coming in, Ashurmanipal II, Hunting lions, conquering his foes, being the divine representative that delivers his people. Keep those key words in your mind. The king is supposed to be the divine representative that delivers his people. Here is this guy marching forward. Which god does he worship? He worships this god. Okay, that god must be enabling him because look what's happening. He's conquering as a representative of that god. So that's one of the things they're supposed to do. And what you see then, as you follow this throughout Scripture, here's another slide. What you'll see is this battle of the gods plays out really in all the major stories that you're familiar with. For example, when it's Moses versus Pharaoh, which you think, you know, Moses delivered. No, no, no. It's actually Yahweh versus Ra. It is Yahweh against the gods of the Egyptian. Pharaoh is the representative of his God. Moses is the representative of his God. Now let's see how this plays out. 
And interestingly enough, for each of the Egyptian gods, our God picks a plague. <laughs> Say, oh, you worship that God? Ha, 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 ha. Do you really worship frogs? Have a few more. <laughs> you know, enjoy. You think the Nile's so great? Try drinking this. <laughs> you know, wow. It's not going to work. So who's God? The question at the end of the day becomes very clear when Yahweh dominates and destroys the other deities, leaving them scattered, dead throughout the land. It's very clear at that point who's God and whose victory this was. So you see that play out. You see it in Moses versus Pharaoh. You see it in Joshua in the battle of Jericho. It's actually not Joshua and Jericho. It's Yahweh versus El and Asherah. By the way, if you're taking notes, you can download these slides online. So you can have all this. Um, so it's Yahweh versus El or Asherah of the Canaanites. Elijah and Jezebel. You may remember this contest pretty well. It's actually Yahweh versus Baal. Hezekiah, this is later now after Jonah, versus Sennacherib. It's Yahweh versus Asher of the Assyrians. Hey, what about Daniel versus the lions? Is it really Daniel versus the lions? No. You know what the Assyrian or the Babylonian god was shaped as? If you go to Babylon, guess what they have painted on their gates? Lions. <laughs> yeah. It's not the lions that rule the day. It's Yahweh. All the way through, he's making this very clear through each and every one of their gods. Whatever it is they worship, good luck. He's bigger, and he will beat them. So this is how you see it playing out in the Old Testament. And in fact, you see that very same thing then in this battle in 1 Samuel 17. Let me give you some very specific text. It's going to be up on the slide here. This is 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 23 through 25. This is what the, um, I'm going to come back and show you how this plays out, but this is, this is what the opponents or the enemies of Yahweh thought. Because those Jewish people live in the Judean hills, their God must be a God of the hills. Remember Jonah when he's going through and they're saying, okay, so who's your God? Well, he's this God. Let's try him. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, who's your God? Let's try this. Quick, we got to find the God of the sea because if we find him, maybe we can calm things down a little bit. Ironically enough, do you know whose God the Philistines is? The God of the sea. I'll show them to you in just a minute. It's very possible that the sailors that Jonah went with were Philistines. They're sea peoples. They live on the port. Uh, in the ports in the coastal areas. And then as their uh, group gains power, they move in. So you see them moving in from the coast to the plains. And ultimately, if they conquer the hills, what that means is their God is not only God of the sea, but he's also God of the plains and the hills and everything. But what does Jonah say? No, no, I'm a Hebrew. I worship God, Yahweh, the God of Heaven and earth, the land and the sea and all that's in it. Remember the big picture, the God over everything. Turns out Jonah is right. I think David will be right in this one as well. So here's, here's that text I was telling you about, 1 Kings 20. They actually say this. Uh, the, the servants said to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, Oh, oh, king, look, look, look. Their gods are guards of, gods of the hills. And so they're stronger than we when we're up there. But let's fight against them in the plain. I know if we do that, we'll win. That's where our gods are strong. And surely we 
shall be stronger than they and muster an army and will fight against them in the plain and surely will be stronger. This is how we win. That God's stuck up there in the hills, so we get away. We come down here, and then we beat them. Guess what the Philistines are thinking? Here's a picture of where David and Goliath actually fought. Here it is. This is the Judean hill country. There's a lake there. There's a little road that goes through the middle. That road actually sort of files like a path, a creek, if you will. Right in the center, below Sukkah, is the plain. Now, if you look in the background where I have it labeled Judean Hill Country, that's what you see, Judean Hill Country. That's where they're at. So guess where the Philistines want to fight David? Down in the plain. You read the first verses of this, it's really interesting. It said the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which you see there, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Azteca in Ephes Damin. So basically, they're like, They're on one hill, we're on the other hill, and Goliath comes out and says, let's meet in the middle down in the plain and see who wins. Come on over, guys. Let's fight down here in the plain. (laughs) Meet in the middle. It's fair. (laughs) Here we go. So he comes out day after day, and he's charging, you know, uh, you know, I'm the biggest, I'm the baddest, I'm the best, blah, 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 running his mouth. And what he's essentially doing is representing Dagon, the god of the Philistines. Here's a picture of him. Uh, I'm sorry, guys, I'm jumping all over the place, I know. Here's a picture of Dagon, and he's a fish, sort of. He's like a fish, man, thing. You can find this on several museums. I'm just putting up one picture, but there's a Syrian uh, cylinder that has multiple pictures of this. So wouldn't it be interesting if Jonah says, hey, um, throw me overboard, and uh, the sea will get calm. And all of a sudden, there is a fish swimming after Jonah. <laughs> what do you think those Assyrian or Philistine sailors are thinking? Uh-oh. <laughs> this is not good. So... Here's another picture of the plane for you. This is a different one showing the route. This is Azteca, the word I just read. We'll skip through this pretty quick. And then here's the next one, uh, the Judean hill country. And I think I have one more, the Brook of Elah, which is dry at some times and has water at other times, depending on the season. But you can see through this valley, out of the hills, comes this little brook in this very spot, which if you happen to be interested in killing a nine-foot-tall giant with a sling and need a few rocks to put in your pocket, I would suggest you stop here. (laughs) Here is the brook of Elah in this uh, place where David probably picked up his stuff. So here we are with the warrior, remember, the divine representative, that is who in this case? Let me ask you a question. Who is the divine representative of Dagon, the warrior god of the Philistines? Goliath, right? He's coming out to the plane, and he's shouting, We rule. You can't beat us. Blah, 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 blah. You know? Well, who would the divine representative, the warrior ruler for Yahweh supposed to be? Who's that? Saul. Right? The representative Saul is supposed to come down here and say, Okay, you've met yours in the name of the Lord. Be away. Be gone. I claim the covenant promises. 
the, New Te- or the Old Testament thing that you gave us this land, and we're going to watch our God beat your God. Bring it. But where is Saul? Same place he always is, hiding, right? Running away, worried about what other people might think, trying to figure it out. He's like, okay, I'm pretty tall, but I'm not quite that tall, you know? Let's be rational. Let's be logical. Let's think clearly. Let's come up with a process. Let's, and there's Saul. He's very measured. He's very intentional. He's only going to fight a fight he knows he can win. Why fight this guy? I know maybe I can get somebody else to do it. That's it if I just sweeten the pot a little. That'll entice him because that's what entices me, right? I'm motivated by money, by fame, by acclaim, by other people's opinions. And surely everybody operates that way, right? That's how all people are. We're all driven by self-interest. Adam Smith, economics, you know this is the way it works. Driven by your own self-interest. So, since that's the case, let me motivate them a little. Hey, whoever goes out and takes out this guy will be rich. I'll give him all the money he wants. All kinds of money. I'm the king. I can do what I want. I'll take theirs and give it to you. Go get them. Wait, that's not enough. You guys are men. I forgot. A beautiful woman. I'll give you the best one I can find. I'll give you my own daughter. Can't get that every day, daughter of a king. Probably got all kinds of crazy perfumes, lotions, and clothes, and whatever else makes her look pretty. I'll give you my daughter. Oh, and one more thing. Once you have all that money and you have the daughter, I'm sure you're not going to want to pay taxes, so I'll free you from that for the rest of your life. So you can be tax-free, beautiful woman, living the rest of your life, happy, fat, wealthy, whatever. Enjoy. Nobody's coming. (laughs) Where are they? What's up? Goliath, it looks like you're winning. Yahweh is losing. Because he's coming out there every single day and saying, we're the best. Anybody going to challenge that? I'm not the king, not your divine representative. Where's your God? Perhaps he fled to the hills. Yahweh, zero. Goliath, one. Enter the shepherd. Now let's see if there's a different approach to this situation. Is it possible that there is someone who might, just might, be motivated by God's glory and more worried about what God says than this silly pagan king? I think so. What we see in this chapter is very, very different. So now I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles, after I've warmed that up significantly, to 1 Samuel 17. Pastor Chuck is going to come and uh, read it to us, because I think he reads great, and you will enjoy it. It's a lot of text, so you want to follow along, uh, either in your Bibles or up on the screen. You can listen, you can close your eyes, but just imagine this scene. Here's the plains, here's the warriors. Where's Saul? We can't find him. Who's going to come and help? Who will save the day? 1 Samuel 17. Starting at verse... I'm in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Aphes-Damim. 
And Saul, the men of Israel, and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephratite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the camp to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke those same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard 
when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David, 
Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Amen. That's a lot of reading. Thank you, Pastor Chuck. Praise the Lord for David. Can you imagine someone just standing there in front of you holding a head? Who's this guy? My name's David. <laughs> drip, drip, drip. Oh, right? Battle's messy. Who wants to go to battle? It's hot. It's dangerous. Food's no good. You don't get to sleep with your wife or be in your bed or anything else. Saul doesn't want to. Why would he do that? Where's the reward in it for him? Perhaps there's someone else out there who's more concerned about God's glory than his own comfort. Enter the shepherd. It's really neat to watch this theme then develop throughout the rest of Scripture. You'll see the shepherd as a prediction or a forerunner or a hint at becoming king, the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. And here's what you see in David then that you will see in Jesus as well. Number one, you'll see that, that David is motivated by God's glory. All throughout this story, he's like, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? What? Define the living God? Does a drawing, does a statue, does a piece of block or wood actually speak? Of course not. We worship Yahweh. He's for real. This thing's a puppet. Who is this guy? He's blown away that nobody's fighting him. He's actually embarrassed that people aren't getting up and challenging this giant. And what happens when he says something? Think about it for a second. First time he says, why, why are we not fighting this guy? What happens? His older brothers try to get him, right? Now, I hate to say this to you, but it's true. Even in a church sometimes, if you point out something that people should be doing that they're not, guess what happens? Your brothers might try to get you. They don't really appreciate the fact that you're making them look bad. When you're the younger brother and you embarrass the older by doing something he's not willing to, the older brother doesn't always appreciate that. Now, it's a lesson in it for you. It's a lesson in it for me. It's a lesson in it for the, those of us who think we're the older brothers, too. <laughs> Sometimes these youth can actually help us out and challenge us a little bit. And they're like, why are you guys sitting on your keister this whole time? Why don't you get up and do something? Well, we tried that before. We can't in no way. It doesn't make sense, you know, if you consider this and this and this. And he's like, I got God. What do you mean? Oh, yeah. 
That's the beauty of youth. They're not afraid to try. Go for it, guys. Why not? Why? Because God's on my team. Why aren't you guys? Come on, let's go. And he comes out there and he points it out really clear. The only thing I really care about here is God's glory. This guy defies the ranks of Israel. That's not right. We need to show him who's boss. Let's go. He's done, God has done this before, you remember. I mean, you know, the whole Pharaoh and Egypt and Joshua and Jericho and the judges and all their stuff. Now, here we are today. You think he can't handle one little giant? What do you, what do you mean? Let's go. Come on. And David embarrasses him. The bro- older brothers don't appreciate that very much at all. They always got to look like the boss. David comes out totally zealous, motivated by nothing else other than God's glory. This is the exact same way Jesus was. What do you think he did to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all them who thought they were the older brother and they knew, knew everything and they did everything right and blah, 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 blah. Jesus is like, no, <laughs> guys, don't have a clue. The only thing I care about is the will of the Father and I'm willing to go all the way to the cross to prove it. So if that's where you're going to put me, go for it. But I'm not giving up. Motivated by the glory of God. That's the ultimate motivation for everything. That's the only reason we're alive, we exist. That's the reason God created the world. It's for His goodness and glory. That's David's driving passion. The second thing is this. David's confident in his anointing. Uh, Samuel has already come to David and anointed him. David believes that. He just accepts the promises. He's like, okay, I'm good. I've been anointed. And therefore, I'm trusting in God. And this is... It's, it's overwhelming and amazing to us because we're so logical and we're so planned and methodical that someone is just so driven that God says go and they're like, yeah, I believe it. I believe it. I am anointed and therefore I'm going to do it. It's complete and total faith. It's just like the little kid that's got his dad on the team. He's jumping up and down waiting to run headlong into overwhelming odds just because he believes in God. It's like, I don't care. Let's go. Why not? David is confident in his anointing. And finally, as I just said, he runs. He, as you look at this battle, he runs to the front line. He runs out to meet Goliath. There's no hesitation. There's no questioning. There's no calculating. There's no nothing. He just runs. You know? Can you imagine if you looked at life that way? And you're like, uh, uh, there's this relationship. I, I just feel uncomfortable. I'm going to kind of steer. David runs right into it. Like, there's this obstacle I know we can't overcome. David runs. There's this challenge. I, David runs. Pick and choose your battles, right? That's how it works. Size yourself up and see, do I think I can win this or not? Because if I can win, I'll engage. And if I can't, I'll come back another day. No. David's not looking at himself. He's not picking and choosing his battle. This battle chose him. And now he's in it. And he's not running away. He's running straight ahead. David runs. So the three things I want you to get out of David's response here in this spot is that, number one, he's motivated by God's glory. Number two, he's confident in his anointing. And number three, he's just running full speed ahead. You look at Saul, that's the exact opposite. What motivates him? Money, prestige, what other people think, comfort, wealth, whatever. He's going the wrong way. Saul's still anointed, but he seems to have forgotten And so he's not paying attention to that. Instead, he's running away. Saul has overestimated the enemy and underestimated God. 
And we need to be very careful that we don't do that exact same thing. How then should we live? Well, here it is. Let's take that slide we looked at earlier in redemptive history, the battle of the gods, and just put that right on our life. Okay, so you have Moses versus Pharaoh, you have Joshua versus Jericho, David and Goliath, Elijah and Jezebel, Hezekiah, Sennacherib, Daniel and the lions, Jesus versus death, Paul versus the philosophers of Mars Hill, Midland Free versus fill in the blank. What are the gods that we are at war with today? Who are you fighting against? What are the struggles in your life? There could be a lot of things, but speaking broadly, I'm, going to speak, I'm just going to go after our culture in general here for a second. For you individually, you'll have to ask yourself the question, how does this apply specifically to me? Is this with my brother and sister, my husband and wife, my job, my employer, my finances, my whatever? But in general, look at our culture. I think four of our biggest gods are these. I'm going to name some what I think are pagan deities. Just name them out. Number one, materialism. Uh, Number two, the sexualization of nearly everything. Number three, busyness. Actually being too busy. And number four, our minds. Our minds. I would say these are four of the biggest pagan deities we have ruling our current culture, the material, being materialistic, sexualizing everything, doesn't matter what it is, it's got sex in it to sell it, and the insane amount of busyness that rules our lives and the battle for the mind. Even if we can get over the materialism thing, even if we can stay faithful to our spouse, even if we can try to maintain some balance, there's still a war going on inside of you. An internal monologue or dialogue that's constantly going. And you've got to figure out whether those are lies from the enemy or the truth of the Holy Spirit. And my guess is, much of the time, it's lies. That voice that's telling you you're not good enough or you can't, who do you think that is? It's not the Holy Spirit. That's not David running headlong face first into the battle saying, Woohoo, let's go God. (laughs) That's a different voice. So what I say to you is this. Today then, we need to engage in the battle. Clearly, I want to make this not in the power of our own strength, but just as we said earlier, as Yahweh's victory produces David's, then Jesus' victory produces ours. In other words, the way we engage is this. Just like David, we need to be, number one, motivated by God's glory. Number two, confident in your anointing. And number three, run headlong into the fray. Pastor Jeremy, I mean, I, I can't do it. Well, don't you know 1 Samuel 15, 17? Though you are little... In your own eyes. Or like this. No David or Goliath is like this. Are you not anointed? Have you not read the New Testament? You are anointed by the Holy Spirit. That seal, that mark, that stamp is not going anywhere. It is rubbed into your skin. You can't get it off. You are anointed. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the Lord's anointed? 
Church, are you not confident in what Christ has done? This is not about you. This is not you versus the giant. This is Jesus versus the world. And you're on the right team. And if that's the case, you don't have to be the big, bad, whoever. You can just trust in him that, in fact, the big red cross is a lot better than the little blue engine. In other words, I'm not telling you, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Let's do it. I'm telling you, Jesus did, Jesus did, Jesus did. It's already done. Amen? Get on board. We won. Let's go. What are you waiting for? Run! Who dares defy the name of the living God? You think Hollywood has something on him? You think your employer can trump Christ? No way. Run. Run. Don't hold back. You don't want the little brother to show up and say, guys, why aren't you doing anything? You need to be ready. Conflict and crisis and all this stuff, it's normal, it's natural, it's part of our world. And it's not something that we are to be afraid of or run from, but instead it's something we're to run to, to go right at it and see it as an opportunity for God to show his greatness. We do so, we trust in the power of our anointing, it's not our size, but instead we believe, as Zacharias records for us, it's not by might, nor by power, it's not by a sword, but by a sling, but by the anointing Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Church, do you believe this? Do you believe this? If you do... You should be like jumping up and down, going, we're going to win. We got this. We got it. Let's go get them. Motivated by his glory, believing in your anointing, running full speed ahead. Father, we thank you for your incredible work in our life. What a beautiful and wonderful God you are. You do all things well. And I am sorry, Lord, I confess the sin of the times that I forget, think that I got to do it on my own, or this battle is overwhelming, or we can't win, or whatever. Lord, that's baloney. That's lies of the enemy, straight from the heart of Satan. God, deliver me from fear, deliver me from doubt. Help me to trust in you and believe in you, motivated by your glory, confident in my anointing. God, cause me to run full speed ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.